who pervert the criminal justice system at the expense of the innocent. So that's the, the crux of the bill. So what I'm trying to wrap my head around, well, a few things. Uh, for starters, this would be with the uh, Department of Investigation, which that's right. right now the, the Inspector General for the NYPD is part of that. Uh, yeah. DOI answers to the mayor. The NYPD answers to the mayor. So I'm curious why this is the uh, right outside body or additional outside body to be overseeing or policing the police about this. So that's not quite right. I mean, I agree that there's no agency that represents the platonic ideal of independence, but DOI is the closest approximation that we have of an independent agency. DOI is not a mayoral agency. The DOI commissioner does not serve at the pleasure of the mayor, cannot be fired at will, can only be fired with cause. And unlike most commissioners who are directly appointed by the mayor without oversight, the DOI commissioner is nominated by the mayor and is confirmed by the city council. So there's a sense in which DOI is independent of both the council and the mayor, but does have some accountability, some reporting obligation to both. So I am confident that DOI has the independence to conduct investigations into the NYPD. Um, no agency, including the NYPD, should be trusted to police itself. And so DOI is the best vehicle that we have for independently investigating police misconduct. Now, we do have the CCRP, but CCRP has narrow jurisdiction. It investigates use of force, discourtesy, the use of offensive language, uh, whereas DOI has the broadest possible authority under Chapter 34 of the New York City Charter, DOI can investigate the affairs of any agency, including the NYPD. And unlike CCRB, which is confined to individual cases of misconduct, not only can DOI investigate individual cases, it can also investigate the larger institutional policies and practices that underlie those cases of misconduct. And the IG has been doing some of that. What powers would the DOI have here to compel cooperation from the NYPD and officers if this bill were to pass? Uh, DOI has subpoena power. So DOI can subpoena any public official, including the NYPD. You're right, even though DOI has the authority to investigate the NYPD, it has no real practice of doing so. There's been an institutional reluctance. And part of the problem is that the NYPD historically has enjoyed a privileged status that exempts it from normal oversight. Like the city council oversees the rest of city government far more aggressively than we do the NYPD. The same is true of DOI. And so my goal here is to effectuate a culture shift, is to get DOI to exercise the authority it has over the NYPD. And has DOI taken a position on this bill, and as you're putting this out, is your thought really the remaining 18 months of this administration, or is this a culture shift ideally going forward and solidifying over time? I think the culture shift is going to take time to take hold, but I'm striking when the iron's hot. We've never lived in a moment where the zeitgeist was so favorable to police reform. And, you know, as a legislator, I'm responding to that zeitgeist, and I'm introducing a bill that I hope will effectuate a paradigm shift within DOI and within the city council. The city council needs to do more to oversee the NYPD more aggressively. And just one last question for you about this. I know a few of the things here that DOI 
Bill says evidentiary misconduct included but not limited to. I think there's uh, six examples there. And a bunch of them are things that are often sort of under the purview of, of DAs. So providing false testimony or information, withholding role in exculpatory evidence, and failure to preserve and disclose to a DA in a timely manner, evidence reports that are discoverable pursuant to state law. So one of the reasons this bill is necessary, that even in this very recent reform wave among the DAs, that they have not done enough to hold the NYPD to account in your view. I think there's been a universal failure to hold the NYPD to account. And the DOI does have an institutional relationship with the DAs. Uh, DOI is both an oversight agency and a criminal law enforcement agency. As an oversight agency, it can issue recommendations for systemic reforms. But as a criminal law enforcement agency, it can conduct investigations on behalf of the DA's office and take criminal law enforcement action against officers who break the law. So DOI has far more flexibility than any other agency in city government. Last question for you here. Going back to DOI's level of independence, I'm curious if the relative toothlessness, in my view, of the Inspector General up until now and the removal of Commissioner Peters for cause, just, you know, I think over generations of reform, as you're bringing up, the, the ways in which the NYPD is able to sort of fight a rearguard fight against oversight, and particularly once you get closer to City Hall? I'm not sure if I heard the full question, but if, but what I think I heard, the privileged status of the NYPD is crumbling. Right? The, the NYPD is coming to grips with the fact that it's going to be subject to the same standard of transparency and accountability that applies to the rest of the city government, that it will no longer have the luxury of living in an alternate universe free from accountability. So that realization is sinking in, and it's going to be reflected in tomorrow's budget, which is likely to subject the NYPD to budget cuts on a scale that it has not seen before. And it probably will face more budget cuts than most city agencies. DOI is only as independent as the commissioner, right? If the commissioner is strong enough to assert independence, then the agency will be independent. But it's far more independent of the mayor than any other agency. You know, I did object to the firing of Commissioner Peters, but the mayor had, you know, he cited the McGovern report as his excuse for firing Commissioner Peters. In the absence of the McGovern report, it would have been politically impossible for the mayor to fire Commissioner Peters. So I, I continue to have confidence in the independence of DOI. Is it perfectly independent? No, but no agency is perfectly independent. But it's, it's the best we've got, and as a legislator, I have to deal with the world as it is, not with the world as it should be. So, Councilman, speaking of <laughs> the world that is versus the world that should be, uh, let's just presume that the absentee ballots will come in and they will all say, I heart Richie Torres, and we will send you packing to Washington, D.C., and you'll be sworn in in January and you'll get working on behalf of the citizens of the Bronx. When you get there, I think that there are going to be some conversations about who the speaker should be. I think there are going to be some hard conversations about the varying colors of blue within the Democratic Party. So I guess first things first, how would you describe your big D Democratic leanings once you get to Washington, Washington D.C. with all the diversity within the Democratic Party? I think of myself as an independent progressive. You know, I won, if, if the results hold, then it's likely to be the case that I won my race, you know, without the local party machine or the national party machine, without the WSB or the DSA, 
without AOC. I won it on the strength of my own operation. So there's a sense in which I feel I have a mandate to be my own person, to govern according to my own conscience. And I'm going to be independent of both the you know democratic socialist industrial complex, but also independent of the democratic establishment. You know, I don't know who all the candidates for speaker are going to be. I'm I'm certainly impressed with Nancy Pelosi's leadership. I'm inclined to support Nancy Pelosi. But again, I don't know who's going to be running for speaker, so it would be premature to offer a judgment there. But I'm going to focus on the bread and butter issues that are affecting my district, health and housing, schools and jobs. For me, the greatest challenge confronting our city is the affordability crisis. Um, more than half the residents in the South Bronx pay more than half their income for their rent. And that's before you factor in the cost of utilities and prescription drugs and food and transportation. So for me, the priority of the Democratic Party should be to establish both health and housing as a human right. You know, expand the Section 8 program so that every New Yorker in need has access to a housing voucher, which would cap rent at 30% of income. So we inject in order to preserve public housing, which to me is the greatest safety net of deeply affordable housing in the United States. That's my priority. Uh, and if that leads me to side with the squad more often, great. If it leads me to side with the Democratic establishment more often, great. I'm going to go based on the issues. I'm not going to become captive to labels. Well, I mean, I've said this before. Um, so let's just say that the political wins are in your favor. I really am excited about the type of diversity you bring, obviously being Afro-Latinx, obviously being a member of the LGBTQ community, but I'm actually really excited about the fact that you'll be one of the few members who doesn't have a college degree and you're one of the few members who grew up in public housing and you represent a large swath of American citizens and and American people, even non-citizens, who actually need this type of representation in Congress when we talk about the true meaning of diversity in Washington, D.C. So I'm very excited about that. Um, as much as you can control the types of committees that you'll be placed on, we know that that's a somewhat mystified process at times, what committees would you be angling uh, to serve on as a freshman in Congress? Uh, you know, that is, I'm not clear yet. You know, certainly the committee that would have jurisdiction over health care would be of interest to me. I would say Healthcare is to the South Bronx what technology is to Silicon Valley. Not only is it important on its own terms, but it's one-fourth of the Bronx economy. The largest employer in the Bronx is the Montefiore Health System, which in terms of revenue is 10 times larger than the New York Yankees. Um, so a focus on health, uh, financial services, partly because Puerto Rico is so historically important to the South Bronx, and that's the committee that would have jurisdiction of Puerto Rico. But, but that's an issue that I'm actively thinking about is what, you know, what committee assignments I want, how to secure them. Uh, that's going to be part of, of our transition. And thankfully, you know, in the South Bronx, you have no competitive general, so I can put my time and energy into building a staff, thinking through what committees I want, building uh, a district office. Uh, it's going to be, there are a million moving parts in Washington, D.C. I'm beginning to learn. You peaked at a real estate living there yet, just all of the life logistics that this entails if uh, the election night results hold. I Before COVID, I was traveling periodically to D.C. I would go to D.C. every three weeks just to familiarize myself with the workings of D.C., meet with members of Congress, meet with leaders and think tanks. Um, but, but I have not been there in several months since the outbreak of COVID, and I have a lot to learn. 
I'm curious as to the New York delegation, just because there's so much diversity within the New York delegation going to Washington, D.C. There's always a lot of emphasis put on the first 100 days. But we know that, you know, depending on who's the president, depending on the composition of the House and also the Senate, it may limit uh, what you'll be able to do. But you spoke sort of more broadly about health care and housing for your constituents. But what is, you know, your number one priority once you get to D.C.? Besides figuring out, you know, your office and how to turn on the lights and how to deal with all the shenanigans that are in that city. But what do you feel like is your most important mandate to have a concrete agenda that's accomplished uh, before you start running for reelection? Affordable housing. So uh, expanding the Section 8 program and expanding the public housing program. My understanding is that it would only cost $40 billion, which is a small dollar amount in the grand scheme of the federal budget, to provide everyone on the waiting list with a Section 8 voucher, which would ensure that you pay no more than 30% of your income towards your rent. But it's one of the best tools that we have for providing deep affordability. Because one of the problems here in New York City and elsewhere in the country is that most of the affordable housing we create is unaffordable to the poorest New Yorkers. You know, when you hear the word affordable housing, the first question that should come to mind is affordable for whom? And the value of a Section 8 voucher is that it would ensure affordable housing is genuinely affordable to those in greatest need. So that would be my number one priority is to reinvest in public housing and to expand Section 8 on a scale that ensures that every New Yorker in need would have access to safe, decent, affordable housing. Follow-up question to that. Is there anything that can be done nationally that would make Section 8 vouchers more appealing to landlords? Since many who do have them, this is a real issue with, with where they can find housing and live. Um, well, some of the Section 8 vouchers can be project-based, right? So when you create affordable housing, you can include Section 8 vouchers in those housing units. So you typically do not have source of income discrimination in that context. Uh, we need more aggressive enforcement against source of income discrimination. But what I have found is that landlords have far more faith in government federal subsidies than in state and local subsidies. More than a decade ago, the city and the state had a homeless subsidy program known as Advantage that was dissolved in one budget cycle. And ever since then, you know, landlords lack confidence that the city and state are going to maintain the subsidy programs that they create, whereas there seems to be pretty confident in, in Section 8. Section 8 tends to pay the rent on time. It's a program that's here to stay for the long run. It provides a reliable revenue stream. So what I have found is that there tends to be more confidence in Section 8 than there is in other uh, rental subsidy programs. So you've been going to, and I'm sure continuing to talk to people in D.C. and getting some advice on how things work there, I'd love to know what advice you might have to offer a year from now for incoming members of the council. First, what an individual member can do to have impact on that body. And second, like what a uh, speaker can and should be doing, what sort of person the next speaker should be and how they should relate to the mayor and um, how that balance of power should work. My advice to an incoming member would be put the governance ahead of the politics. Uh, I'm convinced that if you focus on excelling as a legislator, if you govern effectively, the politics will take care of itself. 
you know, in many ways, even though he's not a legislator, I think that's the original sin of Mayor de Blasio is when he first entered the mayor's office, instead of focusing on governing effectively, he was on a mission to anoint himself as the savior of a national progressive movement. And that to me was the beginning of his downfall. So I would just tell people, you focus on governing effectively and focus on one issue or narrow set of issues around which you can build a brand. You know, I made a conscious choice to focus on NYCHA housing because it was a topic about which I had deep knowledge. It was based on my experience of growing up in housing. I find that if you try to do too much of everything, you'll end up accomplishing nothing. If you focus on one priority or a narrow set of priorities, you can build a brand around it and you can have an actual impact in the real world. And um, to the uh, speaker question, for starters, should this be a second-term member so that you have someone with institutional knowledge but only four years, a first-term member, does where they're from geographically matter? And what should whoever that person is be doing to, to weed the body as an effective balance of power, you know, in real lawmaking institution to the mayor? You know, two terms could be a plus, but it's not, for me, it's not an, a precondition, but it certainly can be an advantage. I think we need a speaker who's going to ensure that the city council remains independent. Um, you know, for me, the real power of the council lies not in its legislative authority, which has limitations, but in its oversight. Right? There's no limit to the oversight of the city council. And you need a speaker who's going to empower the city council to be independent, to oversee city agencies aggressively. But also, you do need a working relationship with the mayor. Right? We have the power of appropriation. The mayor has the power of empowerment. It's in our interest to negotiate a budget that reflects the needs and wants of both branches of government. So you need someone who's going to be aggressively independent on the oversight front, but also have a working enough relationship to negotiate budgets with the mayor. And I think Corey has struck that balance. What should we expect from the budget this year? As I know you're in the midst of those negotiations. And how much of the cut talk right now, as you know, revenues have plummeted, with the virus is the usual ritual and how much of this is really about to happen with the NYPD and much more broadly. Uh, we're going to see, uh, we're facing a $9 billion deficit, so there are no secret cows, including the NYPD. But we're going we're gonna to see cuts against the NYPD on a level that we have not seen before, and that's directly attributable to the mass demonstrations. I mean, remember, in April, the mayor proposed a budget that eviscerated youth services by one-third while only cutting the NYPD by one-third of 1%. Right? And that's, and that's they, during COVID. So this is not pri prior to the revenue fall. fall. This is during it. You, you put out that proposal. Correct. Um, although we were facing revenue challenges, and that's why he was proposing um, zeroing out FYEP and, and, and dramatically reducing the budget of DYCD. But we've made it crystal clear that there has to be greater redistribution of resources from policing toward social services. And that's going to be reflected in the budget to an extent that we have not seen before in this city. Is it going to be perfect? No. There are going to be advocates who are dissatisfied with it. But it's the farthest that we've ever gone in redistributing resources from policing to social services. Thank you. I'm hearing, and we'll know very soon, um, you know, not seen before, and is it perfect? No, that, that we're looking at a number in, in the uh, seven, eight, nine figures, but not, not in fact, a billion there. But we will see as these negotiations continue. 
So, Councilman, before we let you go, um, we appreciate you coming on, especially after uh, such a busy week. But uh, as the numbers come in, it looks like one of your opponents, your colleague, Councilman Diaz, is possibly going to come in third. Uh, and based on some of the comments that he's made in the past, uh, not just about the people in your district, but pretty blatant homophobic comments that have warranted reprimanding by the body of the city council. Yes, this is the caddy segment of the podcast. How good does it feel <laughs> to to possibly win this district with so much support in the Bronx? It is deeply satisfying. <laughs> Um, and I, I've described it in these terms with the triumph of an openly LGBTQ congressional candidate over the leading homophobe in elected office, but that is the sweetest revenge, poetic justice. I mean, th- this is a man who has been crusading against the dignity and equality of people like me from the very beginning of his political career. Right? He marched with Tony Perkins of the Family Research Council in the heart of Manhattan against marriage equality. He was the only Democrat in the state Senate to vote against marriage equality in 2011. He publicly shamed his own granddaughter for the lesbians in a crowd and during a rally in the Bronx. You know, when I first ran for office in 2013, I was afraid to run as an openly gay candidate because of the homophobic atmosphere that people like him created. So to defeat him so decisively to demonstrate the progress that we've made in in a place like the South Bronx. You know, it's one thing to have an openly LGBTQ member of Congress from Chelsea. It's something else to have it in the South Bronx in a place where you least expect it. That, to me, is as definitive a sign as any that we have made progress and that the politics of homophobia, the politics of fear and hate, has no place in the future of the South Bronx or the United States. Hey, I have to ask one, one, one more question, just sorry to jump in, related to that. Um, wh- what happened with the NYPD and the uh, Queer Liberation March on Sunday? And do you have any concerns about them, just, just while we're talking about I mean, I, I mean, I have concerns about the NYPD's conduct during demonstrations generally. Like, I'm concerned about the use of pepper spray, which in my mind is a chemical weapon that can do long-term damage to the people who are the target of it. And I, I just... I'm amazed by the inability of the NYPD to exercise restraint during demonstrations. We all saw the video of the officer shoving a woman down to the pavement or driving a vehicle into a crowd of people or removing the mask of a young man just so that he can pepper spray him. There there seems to be no attempt at restraint. And for me, the issue is a lack of accountability. That wherever there is no accountability, there will never be an end to police brutality. If officers are never punished or prosecuted for misconduct, then there's no incentive for de-escalation and there's no incentive for restraint. So for me, accountability has to be the cornerstone of our criminal justice system. Indeed. Well, Councilman Torres, uh, we so appreciate you coming on. We hope that you're feeling much better post-COVID. And I'm really looking forward to uh, hopefully what you can do in D.C. is staying focused on your constituents and the pressing needs of the South Bronx to really move that district forward in a new direction. Thank you so much for taking the time and I hope uh, we'll continue the uh, conversation. No, thank you for having me. Take care. F-A-Q. F-A-Q. 
Thank you for listening to FAQ NYC. I'm Christina Greer with my co-host, Harry Siegel. We'd like to thank Richie Torres for joining us this week. City Councilman Richie Torres, possibly Congressman Richie Torres from the South Bronx. As always, we'd like to thank our executive producer, Alex Brooklyn, and Adam Kamara, our producer who mixed and mastered this episode. We normally come to you from NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research, but until we are done sheltering in place, we are coming to you from the great states of New York and Delaware. And stay tuned as our own Alex Brooklyn will be producing Surveillance in the City, a new podcast by Albert Fox Kahn and Liz O'Sullivan from STOP the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, and award-winning journalist Ali Winston. And I'll be working on it, too. Thanks for listening, and stay safe. Don't forget to wear a mask. Thanks.